chapter 8, John 8, if you're using that blue Bible in front of you, it's page 894, John 8, starting at verse 21, um, we're actually going to jump right into the middle of this scene, the scene is going to ramp up and get hotter and hotter until the climactic moment towards the end when Jesus finally tells the religious leaders that their father is the devil. Well, anyways, this is the middle part, okay? And so I want to start at verse 21 and read through verse 36. So Jesus said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And now we turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting at verse 16. It's page 558. We left off um, uh, on verse 16, and I'm going to pick back up at verse 16. This is right after the, the preacher, or Solomon, has told the story of the wise poor man who rescued the city with his wisdom. And so verse 16 is the conclusion of that, but you'll understand, I think, if you listen to how I read it, you'll understand why having verse 16 in our reading is important. So there's some instru- instructions. I'm going to read chapter 9, 16 through 10, 4. But we are going to work on all of the rest of it. So all the rest of chapter 10 into chapter 11, verse 8. As I go through the sermon, I implore you to keep your Bibles open so you can see what's going on. So Ecclesiastes 9, verse 16. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense and says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness 
will lay great offenses to rest. What I've read to you from the gospel according to John and from Ecclesiastes is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O blessed Savior, upon whom the Lord, the spirit of the Lord rests, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, whose delight is in the fear of the Lord. Fill us, fill us with real insight and true wisdom that we may may flourish and be an abiding people. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are in the back of the worship guide. If you're visiting, it's going to feel like you're walking into the middle of a conversation because we're doing a series through Ecclesiastes called From Abated to Abiding. If after you hear this today, you get a little interested and would like to know more, you can go to heritagepca.org, heritagepca.org, see the media tab, click on it, and then you can see all the sermons and even Sunday school classes, and so you can go back and find the Ecclesiastes passages, just keep scrolling down, and you can listen to those sermons if you want to catch up. Secondly, if you're visiting, and we have a few here today, Um, If I get really, really loud and turn beet red and my hair stands up and I look like I'm going to explode, it's just because I'm excited. I'm not mad at anybody, so just in case, you need to know that, all right? My friends, sometimes the way to see what's good is to compare, to compare what's good with what is bad or unhealthy. It's like the time I went and had to replace the cartridge in the the spigot in the the kitchen and the water faucet. If you don't know this, if you take the handle off, there's these stems that stick up. And then if you pull the stem out, there's usually a cartridge in there. And that cartridge regulates the amount of hot water or cold water that comes through. Well, one time it was like, you know, I don't know, it was like a, a geyser coming out of the sink or something. I don't know, it was crazy. And so I pull the cartridge out and I'm looking at it and I have no idea if the problem is the cartridge or is the problem something else, like the seal maybe further down in the pipe or whatever. And so I'm looking at it, and I have no idea. So I get the brilliant idea. I said, I'm going to go to the hardware store. I'll go look at one that I know has never been used, and maybe that will show me if this one is bad. And sure enough, I look at the good one at the hardware store, and I go, oh, yeah, obviously this is a bad one. I can see where it's cracked. I can see, oh, got it. Okay, and I threw it away, got the new one, put it in, right? Sometimes the best way, it's not always the best way, but sometimes... Uh, to see better what is good, you have to compare it with what's bad or unhealthy. Now, the goal of such a comparison is not so that you'll run around and obsess on what is bad, right? You would have thought me an idiot if I had sat around and talked about that broken cartridge like all day long every day. You'd say, something's wrong with you, Bubba. You're right, something would be wrong with me. There's, that's not the goal. The goal of the comparison is so that you will know what is good and healthy and right. Well, Solomon is doing something like that here. He's actually doing that very thing here as he contrasts what ought to be, what ought to be with uh, folly and sin, which are powerfully destructive forces. He's going to contrast and compare them. I think the way the Kelly Capick puts it in his book called You're Only Human is, is good. Ecclesiastes is a brutally honest book that explores and then explodes our temptations toward delusional patterns of human existence. I think that's a good way to summarize Ecclesiastes. Solomon wants us to contrast and compare what ought to be 
with folly and sin as powerfully destructive forces. Not so that we obsess on folly and sin and talk about them all day long and put them on all of our news feeds and everything, but so that we'll know what the good is so that we can imbibe more deeply in what is good and healthy. Does that make sense? I think I have to say that on occasion because it's easy to look at the bad things and obsess on them. Okay? So, just beginning right there at the end of chapter 9, what ought to be. Chapter 9, verse 16, 17, and 18. You should have heard it in the way I read it. Drawing together three better than statements in verse 16, 17, and 18 of chapter 9, Solomon is laying out what ought to be. To live the good life in the face of all of the banality, brevity, and brutality under the sun, wisdom is required, tough-minded soberness, not somberness, not sourness, soberness, tough-minded soberness, having our heads squarely set up on our shoulders is required. Now the wisdom that Solomon is referring to in verses 16 through 18 is a wisdom that grows up out of the soil, the healthy soil of the fabric uh, that's, that Solomon has been weaving throughout this whole thing. I don't know how else to illustrate that, but here's a couple of ingredients that make this the healthy soil from which this wisdom grows. First off, the first ingredient, and some of this will be a reminder for those of you who've been through the series... God is actively and personally engaged with our world in the events under the sun, though neither you nor I will likely be able to figure out the reasons, the rationale, or the resolutions of God. We know that even though we can't figure it out, God is actively involved. Life in reality is out of our control. Life is out of our control. Though life is not out of control, it is always in His control. And so we, we are the limited, not the limitless. We are the finite, not the infinite. We are the creatures, not the creator. We are the sustained, not the sustainers. And so that's the first ingredient of this soil that makes it so healthy, is realizing God's sometimes unexplainable sovereignty and providence, His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions, and how often it is unfathomable to, unfathomable to us. That's a good, healthy ingredient. It's Romans 9, 10, and 11. All the talk about God's sovereignty and eternal decrees and election. It makes us scratch our head. We have all kinds of questions on our good days. But notice that Paul doesn't stop and say, well, you know, this is really a conundrum, right? He ends in what we heard in the call to worship. He ends in worship. And the very first line of his worship in Romans eleven thirty three 33 hammers home for us. That we are limited and He is limitless. And we will never be able to fathom Him. And here's how it begins. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. And how inscrutable His ways. So there's the first ingredient that makes this soil healthy out of which this wisdom grows. The second ingredient, one of the second, the second ingredient is this. Life is a gift of God. 
Life is a gift of God. It is not an entitlement. It's exactly what James says over in James chapter 4, 15. What we should be saying is this. If the Lord wills, I will live. If the Lord wills, I will live. And then go do this or that. Did you hear the first part? The Lord wills, I'll live. Life is a gift. You are not entitled. I am not entitled to tomorrow. I have no idea if tomorrow is even going to come for me. And so having that makes you healthier. And so that's the second ingredient. And that helps us then to realize the importance of of the statement we've been hearing from Derek Kidner, simple satisfactions are soundest. If I know that life is not an entitlement but a gift, oh, simple satisfactions are soundest and so forth. There's, there's some of the ingredients. There are some of the ingredients of this soil that makes it healthy from which this wisdom grows. And so then verse 16. Better to have this wisdom no matter what the fickle folk think or, how they re- or if they reject this wisdom. You remember the story, right? Here's the poor wise man who rescues this city and the city may celebrate for a moment, but they don't care about his wisdom and that he rescued them. But Solomon says in verse 16, it's still better to have this wisdom no matter the outcomes of the crowd or from the crowd around you. Better to have this wisdom no matter what the fickle folk think or, how, or if they reject this wisdom. Then verse 17. Better to live by this wisdom. Better to live by this wisdom than to be a raging, shouting king surrounded by fools. You know, a raging, shouting king that's surrounded by fools is out of control and the fools control him. You didn't, if you didn't know that, I just told you. Better to be one with wisdom, this wisdom than to be a raging, shouting king surrounded by fools. Then verse 18. Better to embrace this wisdom with both arms than stockpiling guns, stashing away doomsday preparation kits, or amassing tanks, planes, and armies. Nothing necessarily wrong with doing those things, but far better to have this wisdom than those things. This is what ought to be, that we would have this wisdom. But there are other forces that are afoot. And it's the pattern of folly and sin. And you see that starting in the end of verse 18 and into chapter 10, 1 through 4. Unfortunately, the feckless, flimsy, fly-by-night environment in which we live is filled with fools and sinners. And we need to remember and recall this. Sometimes I think we think that this should be heaven right now. And, hello? (laughs) Hello? It's not. This environment we live in is filled with fools and sinners. So notice how he ends verse 16 then. A sinner destroys much good. A sinner destroys much good. My friends, whether that sinner is in the White House or the clubhouse or the church house or the schoolhouse or our house, a sinner destroys much good. Foolishness will often undo and unravel and dismantle much that wisdom has built. And so that's why he says then in chapter 10, verse 1, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. We had a saying in the military, I had to clean it up because it was not very healthy or clean. 
so I'm going to sanitize it a minute. But you know, a hundred attaboys are wiped out by one ah poo. We'll just say that, okay? And that's the kind of sentiment that Solomon is laying out. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You know this from your own experiences. You know this, for example, that it's far easier to tear down walls, to tear out walls, to tear them down, to pull down sheetrock and to rip out plumbing. It's far easier to do that than it is to build new walls, put in new plumbing and a new bathroom in your latest home remodeling project. Have you ever noticed that tear down is like one day, rebuild is like a month, right? Far easier to tear down. And that's the way it is in life, too. It's far easier to tear down than it is to build up and fix up. Whether we're talking about physical structures or we're talking about people's reputation, it's far easier to tear down than it is to build up. Or we're talking about our families, it's far easier to tear down than it is to build up. Or we're talking about our congregations, it's far easier to tear down than it is to build up. Or we're talking about our politicians, it's far easier to tear down than it is to build up. Or we're talking about our pastors, it's far easier to tear down than it is to build up. Or we're talking about our kids, it's far easier to tear down than it is to build up. Or we're talking about our spouses, it's far easier to tear down than it is to build up. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. It's far easier to tear down, to break down, to pull down than it is to build up. Powerfully destructive forces of folly and sin. And so the fool... The fool has a well-honed, sharpened, precise habit. And, you know, I like to do carving, so I'm always honing the knife blade. And I understand the value of having a very sharp knife. Well, a fool is like that sharp, sharp knife. He has a, long, a well-honed fineness to his ability. And the reason why he has this well-honed fineness to his ability is because foolishness is a lifelong habit. Did you notice that in verse 2 and 3? The wise man goes to the right. He's talking about life habits. Goes to the right. The fool goes the polar opposite. I mean, it's so obvious that he has this habit because even when the fool is walking down the road, I love verse 3, by the way. Even when the fools are walking down the road, it's like a neon sign. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Fool walking here. Right? That's pretty funny. Right? But it's a well-honed life habit of folly. That's why he's so good at tearing down. And so folly and sin are a pattern of powerfully destructive forces. A better focus is, verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right. A life habit that moves in that direction. A life direction that is filled with that kind of wisdom. And one example of that kind of wisdom is found down in verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. It's the one who has the better than wisdom, who realizes that though the ruler may be angry at me, and maybe it was my fault even, who knows, far better to stay there and by calmness to start working at fixing the thing if possible, if it's legitimate to do so. What's our normal knee-jerk reaction when maybe the leader gets angry or somebody gets angry at us and starts spewing out that anger? What's your normal knee-jerk reaction? Don't answer. Mine is to get upset and angry and want to strike back with the same kind of force that's thrown at me. 
That's my normal knee-jerk reaction. And notice that the better than wisdom, hmm, I think I'll be calm and work this thing out, right? There's the example of that, of that better than wisdom. So my friends, the pattern is set. Folly and sin are powerfully destructive forces. The pattern is set, and that's bad news. But there's good news lurking through these verses. You don't have to react, and you don't have to respond like a fool. So then Solomon goes further, and he describes what happens when a fool rules. The fool's rule. That's verses 5 through 20. So I'm going to ask you to follow along as I read chapter 10, 5 through 20. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him when he breaks through a wall. Though he, quarries, he who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. By the way, that verse comes to mind every winter when I'm splitting logs. So I keep my axe sharp. Right? So if the iron is blunt, the one who does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lip of a fool, the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be or, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. And so all of this is talking about a ruler. That's how he begins in verse 5 and you see it, him coming back around to that specifically when you get down to verse 17, 16 and 17. He's talking about a ruler who's a fool, a fool's rule. And so the preacher continues to present further evidences of the pattern of folly, but he's doing so in the palace. Remember, this is probably Solomon writing to his son Rehoboam, who's going to be king after him. So do you get it? Here's a father saying, dude, I don't want you to mess up, right? That's what he's doing. So notice that, first off, the fool makes his own life harder by making things more difficult for himself. That's verses 5 through 9. And a great illustration is the axe. What does the fool do? I mean, he's just not going to sharpen the thing. He's just going to use more and more brute force and he wears himself out. But the other side of this is the end of verse 10. Wisdom helps one to succeed. The fool just makes his, hard, his life harder. The wisdom, this wisdom, this better than wisdom helps one to succeed. Therefore, the preacher goes on to say, don't be stupid and get bit 
Because it's no advantage to the charmer. What good is it for a charmer to be sitting there and get bit by a cobra? And so then the wise person, that's verse 11, then the wise person knows how to charm. And he knows how to garner respect, verse 12. Did you hear, notice that? In the context of the charming the serpent, it then says the words of the wise man's mouth win him favor, knows how to charm. The wise person knows how to charm and garner respect. But what does the fool do? The rest of verse 12 through 15, the fool incinerates. Incinerates with his talk. In fact, I love verse 14. He's quite gabby, the fool is. He's quite gabby, no matter. On matters that he has no clue of what he's talking about. Did you notice that in verse 14? A fool multiplies words though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. Does that not sound like 21st century North America sometimes? He's got lots to say about things he ain't got no clue about. Anybody anybody else ever run across somebody like that? Yes. Right, that's the kind of... That's the way he uses his talk to incinerate. He's full of himself. And so then Solomon goes on and he gets really, really close to home in verses 16 through 19. He moves into the palace and he's going to describe two politics. Let me just put it that way because he's talking about rulers, so I guess you could say these are the politics. He's talking about two politics. Verse 16, he's talking about the politics of living to eat. The politics of living to eat, right? That's that whole that talk about when your princes feast in the morning. They rise up in the morning, the first thing they want to do is consume and consume voluptuously. It's a politics of consumption. It's a politics of devouring, right? So the politics of living to eat versus the politics of eating to live. That's verse 17. Notice how he puts it in verse 17. Your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. The politics of eating to live is the politics of recognizing that my food consumption is not for me to sit around and then and just get big and fat and happy and all those things. It's actually for me to be, serve in my vocation, right? That's the politics of eating to live. All of these things in the end bless me to work in this vocation to serve in this way. And so the two politics that he's laying out here are polar opposites. Living to eat or eating to live. So the politics of living to eat is what brings about verse 18, sloth and indolence. That is destructive. It's part of the destructive force of folly. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. And so Solomon is encouraging industriousness. Verse 19. Think about verse 19. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens heart. Money answers everything. How do you get bread, wine, and money? you got to be industrious, right? He's encouraging his son to be industrious. But then I like verse 20 because it's very helpful. Whatever you do, verse 20, remember that loose lips sink ships. Okay, he didn't say that, all right? But that's the point. Loose lips sink ships. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. 
in whatever situation you're in, remember that what's in your head does not have to come out of your mouth. Let me say it again. That what's in your head does not have to come out of your mouth. Maybe I can get an amen in here somewhere. What's in your head doesn't have to come out of your mouth. Okay, great. That's Solomon's point. In our relationships, in our vocation, loose lips sink ships. Loose lips also are part of the destructive power of folly and sin. They will destroy your family. Loose lips will destroy your church. Loose lips will destroy your country. Loose lips will destroy you. It's part of the powerfully destructive force of folly and sin. So what's in your head doesn't have to come out of your mouth. And so friends, from the White House to the clubhouse to the church house to the schoolhouse to our house... Folly and sin are such powerfully destructive forces, but it doesn't have to be that way. That's why he keeps peppering all of this with the contrast from folly and sin, which is the better than wisdom. And so, the preacher then advises us to learn with this better than wisdom, to learn to take it as it comes. And it's chapter 11, 1 through 8. So follow along with me, chapter 11, 1 through 8. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves in the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. Now this is written in a day when most of the time you don't have a tractor to sow seed, you've got a bag on your side, right? And you're walking out into the field and there's the rows in front of you and you're sowing by just throwing the seed, right? And if you're busy letting the circumstance dictate what you do, you'll never do it. If you're busy letting the circumstance dictate what you do, you'll never do it. The person who's paying attention to the wind will never sow the seeds. And he goes on to hammer that out in the very next statement. When he says, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Well, Mabel can't go out and reap the corn today because, look, there's a big thunderhead right over there. I don't want to get wet and get struck by lightning, right? Letting the circumstances dictate and dominate what you do. It's not a good way to go. Then Solomon goes on. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God. Who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper. This or that or whether both alike will do good, be good. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. And so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Always keep in mind, when you read the word vanity in Ecclesiastes, it's what James is talking about in James 4. What is your life? It's a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. That's the point, the transitoriness of it, the vanity. So at this point, notice that Solomon is gearing up to wrap things up. And in these verses, he says four times. He says four times. He says it once in verse 2. Twice in verse 5, once in verse 6. He says four times, you do not know. You know not. You do not know. You do not know. You do not know. 
He said that when he talked about the fool back in chapter 10, verse 14. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is, etc. Why does he keep saying that? He's reminding us of the certainty of uncertainty. The certainty of uncertainty. My friends, I just want to hammer that home. The certainty of uncertainty. We are not in control of all the outcomes. The end results. What is certain is uncertainty. You do not know. So in the face of the certainty of uncertainty, the preacher draws out some principles which can apply to many adventures and aspects of our life. And basically it's like this. With your head firmly on your shoulders... Strike out boldly. Strike out boldly, though it will look to some as if you've thrown caution to the wind, verses 1 through 4. You don't know what the end result will be, so just go out there anyways and go do it. Who knows what the end result will be? Strike out boldly, even though it will look to some as if you've thrown caution to the wind. But it means if you do that, it means you need to step out with a bit of trust. A bit of confidence in God, verses 5 through 8. A bit of confidence in God, verses 5 through 8. Since uncertainty in life is a certainty, and seeing our littleness and our limitedness, verse 5, and seeing that we have no idea what will prosper, verse 6, this, that, maybe both. And seeing that while there's life, there's hope, verse 7. That's all that talk about, it's good to see the sun. Then go for it, go for it, rejoicing in the gifts of God, verse 8. Content that our days of prosperity and adversity, our days of life and death, what he calls the days of darkness, are all in the hands of God. I love... I just love our Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it it lays it out for us in several different ways, but when when the writers were talking about the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land to which the Lord your God is giving you. In their comment about the fifth commandment, they say this is the first commandment of the promise. That God has promised his people long life and prosperity. Now most of us want to stop there. That's what will sell you books. I want to talk about that long life and prosperity, y'all. But then they put a parenthesis in there. As far as it will serve for God's glory and our good. End of parenthesis. Go for it, trusting in God, because His steadfast love endures forever. He's your God. He does love you. He does care about you, His children. Go for it. Long life and prosperity generally is out there for His people, but there's always a parenthesis, because you don't know. What you don't know, what you don't know is, will this be for God's glory or my good? I don't always know. You know what I'm saying? I don't always know, but he does. And I can trust him as I strike out boldly. I hope that makes sense to you. That's far different than health and wealth gospel stuff. I love the way Derek Kidner puts it in his commentary. Quote, the very smallness of our knowledge and control. 
the very likelihood of hard times, so frequently impressed upon us throughout this book, become the reasons to bestir ourselves and show some spirit, end of quote. <laughs> I like that last line. Give us reasons to, to bestir ourselves and show some spirit. Our confidence is not in us or the outcomes. It's in the one who is over the outcomes. This is how you live the good life when even folly and sin rule with their powerfully destructive force. This is how you live the good life with all of the certainty of the uncertainty. You do go for it, but you go for it entrusting yourself and your outcomes the outcomes of your endeavor into the personal care of God. Who knows if this will prosper or that or both? Who knows the full ways of God? Not you, nor me. Two concluding thoughts, kind of going back into the sermon a little bit here. Two concluding thoughts. My friends, first we see how easy it is, as we were talking about how easy it is to tear down, to drag down, and to pull down. Maybe, as you reflect on that, as you dwell on the sermon, as you think about, look back over your notes, maybe someone listening here, someone who's listening, will be listening online or maybe is watching the live stream, maybe somebody feels the fool and sees how just maybe it has been far easier for them to destroy, to tear down and to break down than to build up. And just maybe that someone is thinking, good God, have mercy on my soul. What do I do? How can I change this? Maybe, just maybe, someone here has a blushing heart that is really ashamed before God himself. And that heart is saying with a moan, good God, would you forgive me? Would you release me? Would you help me? And to that person, whoever it is here or in the recording or watching online, there is help, there is hope, there is rescue, there is release, there is relief. Hating that folly and sin and embracing Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's where it all begins. That's where the release is found. Our Lord Jesus even said so in our gospel reading. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And so He promises to all of those who entrust themselves to Him. He says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Secondly, maybe, just maybe, someone, someone listening is craving this kind of wisdom, this better than wisdom. Sensing maybe, just maybe, they've not been exhibiting or engaging this kind of wisdom at home or at work or at play or at church. Well, I would say take heart. As you come to have Christ, as you are united to Him, you, do, you are beginning to flourish in this better than wisdom. You just may not see it. Paul put it in these words in the passage we read before the confession of sin in 1 Corinthians 1. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You have Jesus, you already have begun to have the power to change and the wisdom you crave. 
So as our Lord Jesus promises again in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we come to you are grateful, so grateful for Solomon, for Ecclesiastes. We do confess to you, Lord, that we have ourselves experienced and sometimes been dishing it out ourselves. It's so easy to tear down, destroy, to rip apart, to shred someone or something. So much easier than it is to build up confess to you and acknowledge to you the powerfully destructive force of our own folly and sin. We just look at our kids. We just look at our families. We just look at our history. And we are so grateful that it is in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can be set free. And so we pray for that for each and every one of us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk forward to go for it with this better-than-wisdom, trusting you in our endeavors. You've never promised us a rose garden, as the song used to say. You've never promised us health and wealth. But you promised that those who seek you will find you and that you are our greatest joy. And so I pray that you would help us to go forward, launch out with this better-than-wisdom. And now, Lord, as we move to communion, we pray that you would draw us to you, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name, amen.